friends, and welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. It's been two weeks off. I've been in the midst of moving, moving studios, moving houses, um, getting ready to take a little trip myself. Uh, but thank you for being patient, and thank you guys so much for engaging via social media. Um, engagement's gone up a ton, and people are really seem to dig in the content and asking awesome questions. And there's just been a lot of great discussions going on via the Instagram channel. If you don't already follow me, check out at that Barraza boy, B-A-R-R-A-Z-A. That's how you connect with me on social media. I am not on the TikTok um, as of now. Don't have a Twitter and not really active on Facebook. So Instagram is the way to connect, but we'll be launching a YouTube channel soon where I will upload all of the podcast episodes in full length with video um, after they're all edited. So that'll be launching soon have a couple other exciting things in the pipeline. So I'm launching um, sort of a a t-shirt, sticker, just kind of clothing line, I guess you you should say. Um, And it's really around just wearing stuff that we find meaning in um, and not just wearing it, but living it is sort of the philosophy behind this. So the first thing I'm launching is a Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul set of t-shirts or tanks for both men and women super high quality uh, clothing and I'm getting these sort of pre-made in samples right now so I can check them out and then you know, order a bulk batch and then uh, sell them to you guys and really encourage you all to buy them, take photos with them, tag me in them so I can share them on social media and really help grow this community that we've been building via the podcast and via social media. Um, and then also uh, going to start launching some some group meetups online through Zoom where we can perhaps once a month have a uh, sort of idea or a thesis or a question that we can talk about and discuss, whether it has to do with relationships or self-awareness or loss, betrayal, divorce, marriage, parenting, work, happiness, sadness, depression, grief, everything and anything under the sun of the deeper parts of being human. Um, and, uh, and just lead, facilitate discussions around this and make it very community-based to where people can join and pay a monthly fee and gather. And um, I really want it to be sort of a way people can connect and exchange contacts. So outside of the meetings, you can have a greater community of like-minded people to tap into, um, to have deep deep talks and deep discussions. And who knows what what will blossom out of that. Um, so really excited about that. The t-shirts are looking awesome so far. I'm also making like bumper stickers slash laptop or wherever you want to put it stickers, um, that are going to be like one and a half inches tall by six inches wide. So I think it's pretty perfect, um, size for, for a multitude of different uses. But if you follow me on Instagram, I've, I've thrown out some samples of those. So, um, once those launch and that store launches, I will be sure to let you guys know via the podcast, via social media. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And it feels good to be stable again. I'm a creature that loves to have sort of an environment that I call home, even though I I did the van life for years. Um, It's nice to be in in a place again. And uh, I moved out of my old place because I didn't have a garage. I needed it for for the bikes and the motorcycle. And so got that dialed and the studio is coming along. I'm setting it up. Um, it's, uh, It's definitely a lot better fit for me and the pups and um, really appreciate you guys' patience. And I'm so excited to launch all these episodes that I've been recording um, that just haven't been edited yet. There's a lot of good stuff. So this week's guest, 
a phenomenal one at that. So I had her counterpart, Danae Logan, on a couple shows ago. And this is Vanessa Bennett. Now, Vanessa Bennett is a therapist and she's based out of Los Angeles, California. She's a psychotherapist, mindfulness and codependency coach, and the co-host of the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast with her friend, Danae Logan. Um, Vanessa is such a brilliant human being. I know I use that word a lot. Probably my favorite word. It's a, you know, it's a great word. And most human beings are brilliant and they, we all have our genius in different ways. But Vanessa legitimately is a phenomenal human being to talk to. And I really find a lot of the perspective she brings around codependency and narcissism to be quite enlightening to me. Now, I I necessarily didn't agree with everything she said. And I, I, I find those pieces with most guests I have on. But She's just has so much perspective being a clinician, having studied, um, you know, specific parts of relationships and sort of the human condition in school, but also been a practicing therapist for a long time now. Um, her partner, you might know, is John Kim, who is the angry therapist, also a man who's doing incredible work um, online and beyond. And I'm a huge fan of, uh, of, of his podcast as well, too. So go, ch- go give him a, a check out as well. But I'm really appreciative that Vanessa took the time out of her day. She's a newer mother to come on and talk with me for an hour and share this stuff with you guys. Uh, We really focus around codependency and narcissism, which uh, two very hot words in modern society, especially in the quote unquote woke enlightened culture, if you will. I hate to use those words, but you know, a lot of people throw around the words, oh, my ex was a narcissist, you know, or, or, or I'm so codependent. And we get into a lot of that stuff, why people would would more readily align with being codependent than labeling themselves a narcissist. For instance, like you hear so many people, even Mark Groves, who has a huge following, other folks saying, oh, I'm a recovering codependent, right? I don't hear a lot of people say they're a recovering narcissist. So I pose that question to Vanessa and she she answers it in best uh, best way she can. Um, and it was it was really intriguing, really intriguing conversation. And there's definitely some some lighter spots of the conversation and some very sort of deeper, darker spots based on her experiences treating clients and and just, you know, her own life experiences. So I really think you guys are going to love this one. Um, I highly recommend going on social media, giving Vanessa a follow, follow the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Her and Danae have some great guests on. I was just a guest on their podcast uh, last episode, so a week ago. And um, I was a, really surprised that uh, a lot of the answers I gave, I was like, oh, wow, that seems like a really thought, well thought out answer. Like, go me. Um, but you guys should go check it out. I think I'm really happy with that uh, with that recording. And they asked some really um, heartfelt and timely questions in our discussion. And uh, I you know, tried my best to answer uh, as best I could. And I think that there's a lot of value in, in the th- a lot of the things all, all three of us say and and uh, we don't agree didn't agree throughout the whole podcast which I I find like those podcasts where people can hold space for each other's uh, positions and opinions even when they diverge really healthy because it also shows people in the audience like this is this is like what a healthy conversation is when you don't agree with someone in certain areas you know you can still have respect and seek mutual understanding but realize that our minds not might, might not be changed and theirs might not be changed but still be malleable to the possibilities of being changed, be open. That's what allows you to connect. Um, but yeah, just such a great conversation, guys. I am excited for you to listen and uh, let me know how you feel. Also, my friend 
Sean Galanos told me I need to stop saying guys so much, or he 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 recommended I stop saying guys so much, which I totally get. Um, I think it's just a habit for me, and I realize it's not uh, gender neutral and probably not the most respectful term to categorize mass audiences. So if I keep saying that, I'm working on it mentally. I'm just going to go back to my roots and say y'all. Uh, but I really appreciate everyone being here. And um, I'm excited for the t-shirts to get here to launch. I really put a good amount of thought into getting very high quality t-shirts because I know what it's like to wear a shitty starchy t-shirt. And I've talked to many men and women who hate shitty t-shirts and I'm right with you, man. Super soft, really comfy, form-fitting t-shirts or tanks. And uh, if I won't wear it, you're not going to wear it. So we're going we're gonna to do this the right way and get something that's inspiring looks good and uh, you want to, you know, wear it on your day-to-day activities so you can, you know, stand for a, for a message, which is starve the ego, feed the soul, which is why I started this, this journey in the first place. Thank you guys. Said it again. See what I'm, see what I'm saying? Thank you all for being here. And without further ado, Vanessa Bennett. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure and to be here. Awesome, and and I'm I'm so appreciative of you of you and Danae having me on your show, which uh, was wonderful to talk to you. But now the roles have switched. You're in the hot seat. I get to ask I you am. a ton of questions. Although I did babble a ton when you guys were interviewing me, I feel like I told like 30 minutes of my life compilation story there. Um, no, that's what we want to hear. We actually prefer that's, that. That's what I figured. So. I would love to start with you introducing yourself to listeners, telling us a bit about yourself and how you got to be this wonderful human helping others that you are right now. Hmm. Where to begin? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, most of the time when I tell my story, it really starts with the fact that I was in corporate for a long time. I worked as a producer in advertising and marketing, uh, living in New York for um, 10 years and Towards the end of that stint, um, I was just, I was really unhappy. I mean, to be honest, it kind of collided with my therapy work and my yoga journey and all the things that it came to a head at 25. Um, I was just really unhappy and I didn't know why. And it was actually at the kind of prodding of a friend who, who brought that to my attention and said, Hey, maybe you should go see my therapist. She's awesome. And so I did. And it just blew my mind and it broke me open. And it was kind of through that start that I just realized that part of being unhappy was that I was working in an industry that I just didn't feel like was doing much good for the world. And it was really fun. I had a blast uh, doing what I did for as long as I did it, uh, but it really just ran its course. And so I started in my free time doing some trainings. I took my yoga teacher training. I did some yoga therapy trainings, some nutrition trainings. And I actually talk about this with a lot of clients who are looking for this career transition is just follow the breadcrumbs. Um, Just do the things that make you feel excited and lit up and interested. You don't have to figure it out. You know, you don't have to know, just do the thing that makes you interested. So I kind of did that. And eventually my, my therapist was the one that came to me with a grad school packet and said, hey, I think you should look into this school. Um, it's called Pacifica Graduate Institute. It's actually on the West Coast. I think that it just would be something you're really interested in. So I looked at it and I, I took a trip out by myself actually to California. I was in a relationship at the time that was just um, not going very well. 
took a trip out here by myself. And I remember the moment when I stepped out of my car onto the campus at my grad school and I had this like full body visceral reaction, which I now am very clear that is kind of my knowing. It's my feeling of knowing. And I've had it a few other times since then, but it was new to me at the time. Um, you know, the hair stood up on my arms and I got kind of overwhelmed and choked up with tears and just had this feeling of like, oh, this is it. Like, this is where I need to be. So I, I actually commuted back and forth every month for 10 months from New York to LA to go to school and was still working full time until I finally was like, oh shit, I can't do this anymore <laughs> and made the transition and moved out here and began my life out here. And uh, since then, it's just been this wild, exciting ride of just furthering my exploration of self and um, you know, just nerding out on all things depth psychology. So the school I went to was a depth psychological school, which is a Jungian based approach to psychology mm -hmm. and just further furthering my, I guess, study of um, the soul and the archetypes and the architecture of the soul and, and how we show up as this messy human self and this messy human life. And um, yeah, I, I credit kind of where I'm at now really to my partner, John, because he was doing this 10 years prior to me. So when I met him, he had already been like, you know what, podcasting, social media, you know, you don't have to look like the typical therapist sitting in a room all day with one-on-one -on -one clients. You can do different things. And so that's kind of why, why I am, I guess, where I'm at is, is really with a lot of his guidance. Amazing. Let's talk about that sort of feeling of knowing that you described when you got to this campus. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, do you think that was the first time you experienced that or just the first time you actually listened to it and sort of embodied it? I think it was the first time I listened to it. I, I'm I'm very sure that I had other moments of knowing uh, prior to that. But I think with all of the work that I had done up to that point, I mean, I had been in therapy at that point, I guess, like five years or something. Okay. It was I was tuned into it. Right. I was I had the ability to actually hear it and pay attention to it. Whereas I think before that, um, my intuition had been turned down so low. I mean, I'm somebody who struggles with a lot of codependent tendencies and kind of one of the hallmarks of that is really having a very low sense of self-understanding, self-worth, mm -hmm. a very kind of diminished sense of your gut and your intuition. So I for sure know it was there. I just probably never listened to it. So the follow-up question to that is, do you think everyone has that internal sort of intrinsic knowing? And you can answer that first. And then if we do, how do we hone it? How do we listen to it? How do we get better? Is that different for every human being? Um, I'm going to say yes and yes, but I'm going to put an and on the end of that. So I do believe that we all have that. I think that it's human nature to have a sense of intuition, right? It's a survival mechanism, actually. It's it's how we have become what we've become as a species. If we didn't have that intuition, and honestly, actually, as I'm saying that out loud, I think every animal actually has a, an intuitive sense, right? It's survival. It's how we know there's a tiger in the bush. And so we get this weird prickly feeling and we run, right? Um, without that gut feeling, we wouldn't survive. But I do think that... Um, Human beings are probably the only species that have, through another mechanism of survival, which is attachment, learned to override it or to shut it down or to not listen to it. Um, I would, you know, I'm not going to back that up with any research, but my gut is telling me that if I were to look out there, that would be research backed. Like, I, I'm sure we're the only ones because we, we're the only species that has that kind of prefrontal thinking outside of maybe apes. Um, I do think it's very important that we hone it. It is a process. You know, a lot of the people that I work with that are struggling with codependency recovery, 
I kind of start off by saying, not to overwhelm you, but codependency recovery is actually um, identity forming. It's identity building. That's mm. the process of recovery. So it's it's heavy lifting because you really are actually discovering a sense of identity or rediscovering a sense of identity. And, you know, the process of that is is complicated and it's nuanced, but it, it's about trial and error. Um, it's about, well, I guess it would be a combination of trial and error and discovery. So, um, you know, starting to learn about yourself, starting to pay more attention to that feeling, right? What lights you up? Like I was saying earlier about the breadcrumbs, like what excites you? What lights you up? A lot of people will tell me they don't even know, you know, I don't know what my needs are. I don't know what my wants are. I don't know what my feelings are. We've, we've just turned it down so low. Um, and I do believe everybody can get there. Um, but it just depends on, I guess, how committed you are to actually, um, not just listening, but also doing the trial and error that requires that you, that is required of turning it up and honing it. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does. Do you think that intuition can ever lead us astray or that it's always correct if we're truly listening to it? That's a good question. You know, what I want to say is I actually don't think intuition will ever lead us astray. Um, I think that when we are led astray by what we think is our intuition or our gut, it's actually not our gut. Um, in my experience, not just with myself, but with clients, when people are like, oh, I followed my gut and it, you know, was wrong or it blew up in my face. It's like, well, was that really your gut or was that what you think is your gut, but is actually all the external voices that you have adopted as your gut? To, like I said, this idea of attachment, right? To, to have a, an attachment, you've learned to trust others more than you've tr- you trust yourself. So a lot of times I get pushback when I start working with people where they'll say like, but I know what my, you know, I have, I know what my intuition is saying. I know my gut. And um, my kind of half joking response to that in the beginning of recovery is uh, I want you to actually do the opposite of what your gut is telling you. <laughs> If your gut is telling you to do something, do the opposite. If your intuition is telling you to do something, do the opposite. Because usually in the beginning, it's not really your gut that's saying it. It's actually, again, it's those like adopted voices that we think are ours. Mm. Okay. That's a great answer. I I really want to sort of focus the conversation around codependency because that is your jam in so Mm -hmm. many respects. And it's such a hot topic right now. It's such like a you know, just a word that so many people throw around. And I think unless you have a clinical background, it's probably pretty hard to define it. You know, you can, I've read a ton of books. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Melody Beattie was the, was the person who termed the word right in in her work. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if she actually termed it or she just was kind of like the one that blew the lid off it. Maybe, maybe she like brought it to mainstream and, and more and more people, clinicians kept reading it. Yeah. So can you give us a quick definition in your mind on, on what codependency is? And well, let's start with that. Let's, let's define it. So I teach a series of courses around codependency and in the 101 class, which kind of kicks it off, I I start with exactly what you're saying, which is it kind of irks me that codependency has become one of these like pop psychology terms that I think gets thrown around a lot. I don't think people necessarily understand truly what it means. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of narcissism, right? Like everyone's a narcissist these days without an actual <laughs> clinical understanding of what it really means. Oh my God. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's a narcissist. Oh, they didn't agree with me. Right. So clearly they're narcissistic or they treated me wrong or poorly. So clearly they're narcissists. And it's like, Oh, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
that's, I think one of the things, though, to be fair, that people struggle with is that there are a lot of different definitions out there, even in the clinical sense of codependency. You know, the, it, it it originated really in, um, I guess, contrast to the alcoholic, right? The, the rise of AA specifically. And so codependence or codependency was really reserved for the wives of alcoholics. And I think that a lot of the... Um, kind of old way of looking at it still stays in that realm. You know, it's very constricted to the relationship to addiction, substance addiction, uh, which is limiting and not the case. So the way that I usually talk about it is um, I have a very pithy way of saying the definition, which is just codependency is strictly this. If you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. So essentially, my sense of self, my sense of self-worth, my sense of identity, emotional identity is based on somebody else. Um, and it's usually categorized with, a, a, like I said before, a low sense of self-worth, a low sense of self-understanding. Um, if I had a strong sense of self, I wouldn't actually be basing my emotional uh, stability on somebody else. That's really interesting. So do you think a lot of codependents are have high empathy? Because when you say like, mm-hmm. this person's not good, I'm not good. In my mind, that that almost translates to like a sort of unmatured empath where, yeah. you know, we're basically like feeling another person's feelings, you know, and we can put ourselves in those shoes and then all of a sudden it becomes us. So their reality or their emotions become ours. And I, I can certainly relate to being in that situation. And it wasn't until sort of I kept practicing being able to like distinguish my internal climate versus where someone you else's. end and where they begin a hundred percent yeah because yeah. I, I would say based on i know clinical terms i've been pretty codependent in most of my adult relationships mm-hmm. and then it comes from childhood is mostly everything does um but would you say like the empathy and codependency sort of go together and empathy yeah. is such such a thing that's like really viewed in high regard which which i agree with but how do we delineate like healthy empathy versus unhealthy codependency. Where is I'm literally the line sitting here getting excited because this is like the juicy part of this conversation. I, I actually get on quite a soapbox around this very specific topic. Um, so yes, it has to do directly with empathy. Um, I get asked a lot, and actually our lovely friend Danae would, would disagree with me on this. We've, we've had quite a few conversations around this topic. Um, as somebody who considers herself an expert in, in codependency, what I will say is that and, and as a therapist, do I believe that an empath is real? Yes, I do believe there's people out there that kind of um, are classified as empaths. But do I believe that being an empath is some kind of spiritual gift that is bestowed to us, you know, from on high, which a lot of people do? No, I 100% do not believe that. Um, being an empath or being highly empathic is a developed skill. It is something that we we tone, we um, fine tune over time. Now, look, all human beings are born with mirror mirror neurons, right? It's part of how we survive and and attach to our primary caregivers. So mom looks at baby and baby looks back in her eyes and mom, you know, makes a noise and baby coos in response. That is mirror neurons. We are doing that because what happens is when I do that as a baby, then mom looks at me and goes, oh, and like melts deeper into this feeling of love and attachment, right? So we are born with an ability to kind of reflect back and essentially take in what we are feeling and sensing from this other person and then reflect it back to them um, or respond in kind, which really is one of the basis, um, basises, bases. I don't know what the plural of that is of empathy. With somebody who struggles with codependency or somebody who considers themselves an empath, which is like what you were saying, I don't know where I end and this person begins. I walk into a room and I immediately take on the energy of the room or the energy of this other person um, to the point where it can be debilitating. So that is 
a very, very finely tuned skill, right? So mm-hmm. let's, let's use an example. Um, I grew up with a dad who is a little volatile or even just is a lot volatile, volatile, um, emotionally. When dad comes home from work, I have to pay close attention. Is dad in a good mood? Cause if dad's in a good mood and he's happy, then I can be kind of bubbly and happy as a kid and I can be cheerful and laughing and telling stories. If I sense dad coming in and he's in a bad mood and I sense it immediately without dad even saying a word, right? I pick up on his energy. Then I know I need to kind of be quiet, be behaved, maybe even disappear into my room for safety. It's so interesting you're saying that because I, I I just see images of my relationship with my mother, the same exact thing yep. to verbatim. And I, I was a kid, I was always told like, oh, you, the, your kid's like very quiet and very like reserved. And I'm like, well, that's because I was always picking up on cues yes. for my mother's sort of psyche or her or state of being or well-being. And if she wasn't in a good spot, like my energy would be subdued, you know, because yeah. I didn't want to sort of poke the bear or, you know, and I, and it's interesting because, you know, when I've read a ton about codependency, it's always from some sort of, you know, parental relationship mm-hmm. usually, right? Some sort of caregiver. Yeah. Do you think that like, un sort of regulated empathy like a very high degree of unregulated empathy is codependency in 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 a way like like i guess empathy without boundaries yeah yeah that's a good way to put it and and you know i there's actually a term for this and and i might be butchering it i I use it all the time and of course right now i'm forgetting what it's called it's either unhealthy empathy or it's called like um Oh, what's the word? It's it's something along the lines of like unhealthy empathy. Let's just say that's what it is. And if it, yeah. it pops into my mind, I'll say it. And basically what that is, is that's that line. So mm. I tell people all the time when they're when they're taking my courses, you know, being an empathetic person is not a bad thing. Being an overly caring person is not a bad thing. The vast majority of people in the quote unquote helping positions are actually codependent is all hell. Um, yeah. Therapists, nurture, nurses, teachers, EMTs, like full of codependence. The thing is, is that it's this line and it's different for each of us that we have to get very uh, familiar with, which is where is the line where it crosses over into unhealthy from healthy? Where is this line where it crosses over into, and this is with any codependent behavior, it controls me more than I control it, right? It's just like tail wagging the dog, if you will. Um, My sense of self disappears in service of right? Uh, that's the line that we have to get really familiar with. So it's not a bad thing to be a highly caring, empathetic person. I look at it as, I love the fact that I can walk into a room and immediately be like, oh, I do not like that person. I don't like their energy. I'm staying the hell away from this. Per-. Like, I love that I have that ability, right? Um, but like anything, it can really be your superpower or your kryptonite. It just depends on how well you understand it. I like how you brought up it's sort of a learned tool because I, I do agree with you on the on the em- empath not being sort of a gift from the gods, but being a skill that's built over time and we all have the capacity to do it. But it is based on situations and experience, mm-hmm. right? If you're not exposed mm-hmm. to certain situations, you cannot develop empathy because empathy is you have to have direct experience to trauma, pain, suffering to be able to put yourself in someone else's right. shoes, right? If you don't know what it's like to lose a loved one or to lose a child, it's going to be really hard for you to have empathy for another person that did. You can have compassion, but those are two separate things, right? Empathy mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. you're you can put yourself in that person's shoes compassion is you can see them as another and you can sympathize or have compassion with them and you know i think the world could use a lot more empathy but it seems like when it's unregulated you know it's like 
people, we lose a sense of ourselves, And I, and I can admit to that in both of my adult loving relationships, that's exactly what I gave, gave and gave and gave. And all of a sudden, like my sense of self or my identity, or even like what I was pursuing, my goals just like sort of vanished. Right. Right. And that wasn't at the fault of either of my partners. That was just what I did Mm -hmm. because I was sort of like overcompensating. Well, that's what you thought you had to do. hundred percent, hundred percent attachment to keep attachment. And I want to get into attachment theory because it's to relax relates to it. Um, but I, I also think like it's even worse when you're with a partner that is the opposite Yeah. because it's sort of like, and it, as, as you know, like we often attract that we attract the lessons mm-hmm. we need to learn. Right. So you keep putting more into the fire while other person's like, Oh, it's quite warm. I'll think I'll start throwing, I'll stop throwing logs in now, you know, I'll just yeah. keep it myself. And, and that's in this, you're going to say something and that's in this like unhealthy dynamic, right. That perpetuates in adult relationships. Well, yeah. And I, and I think what you said is, is pretty spot on. It's this idea of like, I, you know, I'm, again, I'm just going to call it negative empathy. There is a term for it. Um, what I think is really important for people who struggle with codependency to understand is that, so this is that line for us, right? It's about, like we said, it's where, where do I end? Where do they begin when my sense of self is actually lost? Right. But really also what's super important to get very clear about, and this is not something that people like to hear. That kind of empathy, when it goes over that line and it becomes this unhealthy, this negative empathy, it's not actually about them. It's not about mm-hmm. you caring about them. It's actually about you. What it yep. turns into is a, is a form of like self-serving empathy. Soothing. Yep. It's actually a kind of selfish form of empathy. It's not really about them. You think you're yep. a caring person and that you're doing all these things because you're so caring. When you get to that level... You're not. It's because you're uncomfortable. It's about your anxiety. It's about managing your internal turbulence. It's not really about caring about that other person. And that's really hard for people to hear and to understand sometimes. Yeah. I think that's, it's important that you bring that up. And I, and I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that like it's a gradient because not everything someone that's codependent does is, is selfish. But mm-hmm. every time you cross that line where it's above and beyond, and there might be like a handful of things you do that are legitimately in the best mm-hmm. interest of the other human being in the relationship. But as soon as you step over that line and you're like overgiving, you know, continuously that, that sort of area is where it's unhealthy and it's sort of self-serving. You're almost trying to like reparent yourself in a healthy way because you didn't get like that validation based on, you know, your needs as a child somehow you know, or, or the situations that you, that you were in. What, one thing came to mind is how do we keep a sense of self? And and we're talking about a romantic sort of like monogamous relationship. Like how do we keep a healthy sense of self while still giving into the relationship and putting effort into the relationship, you know, because it's a fine line, right? Like, like selflessness, selfishness, and keeping a sense of self, which I think is healthy, practicing mm-hmm. self-love versus selfishness. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, any relationship takes compromise. It takes work. You have to put into it, right? Two people meeting together or more. How, like, how do, how do we walk those lines? How do we get better in that arena? Like, what are the things we can practice? Well, the first thing that I usually tell people, um, and it's kind of like the easiest thing to do, um, especially if you're somebody who does struggle with some of this codependent stuff, it's going to be really hard for you to just say, okay, I'm going to start tuning into myself. Because when you're starting from scratch, you actually don't have any sense of what that sense of self is. You literally are starting from from kind of zero, uh, unfortunately. One of the easiest ways to get very, very in tune with that self very quickly, we might not know um, or be able to articulate or pinpoint certain emotions because a lot of times that comes with codependency. I don't actually know what I'm feeling or why. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we're all really good at feeling is resentment. Yep. 
All of us know woo, so clearly, especially those of us who overgive, we know what resentment feels like. So the task is, first and foremost, turn up your awareness style on your resentment. Start using that as a flag, as a way in to something is going on in my internal system because resentment is a flag. It is there to tell us that something is going on that we need to pay attention to. We are overextending. We are overgiving. We are not speaking up. We are not putting words to something that needs to have words to, right? So the first step would be pay super close attention to your resentment. And I always say it doesn't matter if it's like overwhelming rage-filled resentment or it's just like the tiniest little sniff it's all there to tell you something. And really what it is, is somehow, some way your codependency is being activated and it's asking you to pay attention. That's yourself. That's asking you to pay attention is yourself. So if you can get more in tune with the resentment, you actually are allowing that kind of intuitive voice to turn itself up a little bit more each time. Most definitely. I Do you think that someone that's codependent can be avoidant in attachment theory? I am. You are. You're codependent. Yeah. You are. You've been codependent, and you're. We're, oh, we're I still struggle. With I don't know that we ever like fully recover from codependency. <laughs> I, I kind of think it's like good news, guys. <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> you, but like uh, we could get better, right? Um, I, I actually, in my one-on-one, one of the points I always say is that it, this has nothing to do with attachment styles, and they don't actually overlap at all, um, because okay. there are plenty of people who are avoidant and who are anxious. I mean, maybe I guess you. I, I guess I wouldn't say never, just because if somebody truly is secure, which now the research is showing that that doesn't actually even really exist, that nobody is truly securely attached, um, that maybe somebody who is securely attached wouldn't necessarily have codependent tendencies. But I was always curious about that because I'm like, you know, we, we can change over time. And like, mm-hmm. if you're in a secure relationship and you've done a lot of yes. self-work, like, sure, you can be secure, but that doesn't mean you're going to be secure if the relationship changes directions, if something yeah. happens, if there's like, it just seemed like it was too like, you know, like good in the middle, like sort of not yeah. good on the outside where it's more it's of this so much gradient. More yeah. Cause we're, yeah. we're, we're so like, you know, we're so complicated in every situation. I mean, you can be secure on Tuesday and be really insecure on Wednesday, you know, like on what's going on in your life. Right. And you know, the thing about what's it, going on your life. I guess where the overlap would be between attachment styles and, and the codependency world is that, um, they're similar in that, like what you're saying, they can show up differently depending on the kind of relationship, depending on the person, depending on the situation. So I have this like long list that I go over of of symptoms of codependency. Let's say there's 20. And I always say, you know, in my relationship with my mom, it might show up or manifest as like symptoms one, two, and 10. And in my my romantic relationships, it might be nine, seven, and four. And in my work relationships, it might might be 13, 14, and 15, right? So it does manifest differently depending on because different people activate us in different ways. They elicit different responses from us. They make us feel more secure, right? Unless um, kind of destabilized or, or what have you. So similar to attachment styles. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we we evolve, we grow over time, and, and we respond to different people because, you know, different people bring different things. I want to make this statement. I, I want to see if you agree with it. And I know you're going to give me your, your full on opinion, which I love. So I just thought of this is resentment is a form of entitlement to the codependent, meaning that to an overgiver, resentment comes directly from the anticipated giving back from whatever we've been giving. Yeah. Right. And, and I just, I bring that up because in, in my own mind, like a lot of times when I was overgiving and I kept giving and giving and giving, and even if there was like, you know, 
partner on the other and was like, oh, I'm trying to meet you. Or I'm trying to do this. And I didn't feel like in my reality that it was being met enough. or effort was being made enough. Exactly. The word is enough, you know, because past partner, like I don't ever feel like I'm enough. Classic thing for someone that's, you know, with a codependent person too. And I'd say that, you know, do you think that that statement, like, you know, resentment is a form of entitlement to the codependent it is is spot on is true or if it's not like what are what are the loopholes in that no i mean i think it's pretty accurate i think that um one of the things that i say is that and and look a lot of codependency recovery is about hearing shit about yourself that you don't want to hear a lot of it is about like taking ownership for for your You're like, i thought side. i was the victim i thought i was the victim like <laughs> well, why am i in it. here you got it. A lot of codependency is kind of rooted in a lot of victimhood, a lot of martyr syndrome. It can actually be very controlling and very, very manipulative. And look, it doesn't come from, um, you know, a, a malicious place. It all of these tendencies come from, they're all maladaptive ways that we've learned to get our needs met or to try to get our needs met. Right. That, by the way, is the difference between a codependent and a narcissist, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, ooh, I was just going to ask you that question. Yeah. So we'll put a pin in that one because that's always a juicy one too. Um, but you know, they don't come from a malicious place, right? They do come from a caring, a caring place. But the problem is, is that yes, you are right. I always say with with resentment, the reason why it's so important to pay attention to it is because that is your gateway. That is your gateway into. Okay, what's the controlling behavior? What's the um, you know kind of ridiculous need that I'm putting out there. Not ridiculous like everybody has needs, but ridiculous as, and it's almost like an expectation usually that oh, oh, can't be met. Like you're, you're desiring or expecting somebody to meet a need that is probably rooted in some childhood stuff that it is not even probably accurate or, or realistic that somebody can meet in entirety. Like part of this is you needing to learn to meet some of that need. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're right. It's an expectation. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's a way to keep us a lot of times in this victim place. And by the way, it's very addictive. This yeah. is the thing. Like codependent behaviors in themselves are an addiction. They're an emotional addiction. Um, but we can be very addicted to the feelings of victimhood, very addicted to the feelings of resentment and martyrdom um, because it, it's a protection. If I can constantly feel in resentment, then I don't really have to look at what's going on underneath that resentment. It's like this indignation. Right. And that that feels very powerful sometimes to somebody who actually at their core doesn't feel like they have any power. I'm ruminating on this. Really I know. Quickly. I was like, that was a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just I, I'm really absorbing it because I, I it's, it's just wonderful to hear this. And it's yeah, I don't know. It's just super powerful information from someone that works with this so closely. So is it do you ever see in your line of work two codependents in a relationship together? Yeah. All the time. I mean, look, all the time. Um, okay. I'm going to plug this in. Sorry. Look, bottom line, people who are substance addicts are also codependents. They were they had codependent behaviors long before the substance came in and started helping numb. Because those codependent behaviors are actually your way of numbing. It's the same thing. So so one person's Jack and Coke could be another person's people pleasing. Yeah. So so if you were to tell someone, you know, this is the thing with diagnosis in a clinical setting, if you tell someone that, you know, you're severely codependent, or correct me if I'm wrong, but narcissism is usually the opposite of codependency, right? It's kind of, well, I wouldn't say the opposite. Um, they actually are very similar. 
And so people get very uncomfortable when I say that. Let's get into that then because I'm curious because, you know, codependent is something that I hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm a recovering codependent. Mark Grove says it. A lot of people say it. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard one single person on the internet says I'm a recovering narcissist. Maybe a few people. But saying that word is like saying, no, well, I have bipolar disorder. I'm severely depressed. And it's like it's still stigmatized in such an unhealthy way where someone cannot be honest with what they're dealing with. And we don't I don't think as a culture we provide the space for someone to heal because as you said like no one chose this and Mm -hmm. if people are trying to heal and aware of it like we should be applauding them and welcoming in to heal versus being like oh my god like you have this thing that i've read about in books that seems like you know this big green-eyed monster so horrible it's it's and and so can you define the difference between codependency and narcissism first and then you know in your mind i've never heard someone say they're similar like how are they similar and and why Okay, so they're very similar. And let me tell you why. So let me start by saying when we come, we're talking about like clinical, um, you know, clinical jargon and diagnoses. Codependency is not actually in the DSM as a diagnosable personality structure or disorder, which is why you're never going to hear anybody actually be diagnosed with codependency. Narcissism actually is. Narcissism is looked at as a personality disorder and it's a spectrum disorder, just like any of them are. Um, Codependency, mostly because it is so nuanced and it does tend to be so kind of like it shows up this way for this person and this way for this person. And also because to a certain extent, every one of us has codependent tendencies because we are social creatures who rely on other people and for connection and attachment and all these things. It's hard to pinpoint it and diagnose it. Right. So let me start with that. Narcissism and codependency are very similar in that they are but they're both other oriented meaning I structure and I get my sense of self outside of myself, okay? This is partly why narcissists and codependents love each other so much. This is partly why you're going to hear a lot of times like the codependent talk about being in the relationship with a narcissist. This is a lot of times why a narcissistic parent will inevitably raise a codependent child. They are very similar. The difference is usually rooted in the motivation or the motives behind the behaviors. So a narcissist motivation is usually a lot more structured in, um, you know, a more, God, my mom's word facetious is coming up for me right now, but it's a little bit more of like, um, like a negative connotation. Whereas at least in the beginning, the codependence kind of motivation is more in like a caregiving, um, a care of others. It does actually become about the self, right? Which is another reason why they can be very similar because it does turn very self-serving in codependency, but that's not usually the root cause of it. It usually is rooted in deep empathy, right? Almost to a fault. Um, so I always say like, uh, trigger warning to hear this, but like codependents and narcissists are a lot more similar than people, at least codependents want to hear. So there's that. The reason why you don't hear as many people saying I'm a recovering narcissist is because unless you are on the very, very tiny low end of the NPD scale, the narcissist personality disorder spectrum or scale, you are not actually capable of acknowledging or admitting that you are narcissistic. There is an incapability to accept narcissism because here's the thing, a true narcissist does not actually know or believe or understand that anything is wrong with the way their personality structure is. It's actually, so if you look at it, like people who are listening can't see me, but it's like the ego, let's like use our fist. The ego is at the center, okay? Then we have the ego structure, which is created around the ego in order to protect 
the ego. This is where the personality structure tends to come into play. That narcissistic personality is actually created as a way to protect that ego. If my personality in any way allows a little glimmer into my psyche that I might be narcissistic, it's actually really dangerous for the ego structure of the narcissist. They can have a complete and total break. So where's the hope? How, how do we, how do people, That's hard. I mean, that it's a really difficult thing then is the it's diagnosis worth it? Is the diagnosis worth it in my mind? Because how it does is it worth it? Um, I have seen people with narcissistic tendencies, right? Have some form of recovery over time. I have, or like I said, people who are on the very low end of the spectrum. In my clinical opinion, and in even just, I remember in grad school having a teacher once who said that narcissists, that he would rather work any day of the week with somebody who's structuring from, uh, suffering from like a complete break in self, like somebody who is completely in their schizophrenia or somebody who's completely in, you know, versus a narcissist because narcissists are the hardest clients to work with because they're typically incapable of self-reflection. Man, it's a hard pill for me to swallow because I, I genuinely has started this because I, you know, I think that I truly believe most people can help themselves to an extent. And it's hard for me to believe that there's something within humans that is sort of a incurable cancer of the mind mm-hmm. or of the psyche. And I guess, you know, I guess to, to acknowledge it exists is one thing, but then to diagnose people with it, it, it seems almost like why tell somebody if they're not going to know anyways? I think it's, to be honest, I mean, if I'm if I'm just off the top of my head, I think a lot of times the diagnosis is actually helpful, more helpful for those in the narcissist life than it actually is for the narcissist themselves. And it's not to say that you can't live, you know, you have a lot of us have narcissists like in our family or in our close circles, and they can be very charismatic and very gregarious and very fun and very social. And there's a lot of good qualities that our narcissist can bring to the table. But the thing about the, the, um, the diagnoses is like, so for example, if I am the partner of a narcissist in hearing a diagnosis or understanding that my partner's a narcissist, what that might help me do is take away a lot of the personalization of the behavior and also a lot of the expectation of what this relationship is ever going to look like. So can you have a healthy relationship with someone that has severe narcissism? I think healthy might be a relative term. I think sure, the healthy, subjective. I think the healthy in this, right, has to do with you on the other side of the relationship. Um, having very clear and structured boundaries, expectations of that person, not expecting healthy behavior from an unhealthy person. Um, and then in that understanding and in that development of boundaries, you get to decide what this relationship looks like for you. Um, you know, I, I work with a lot of people who have narcissistic parents and that's, like I said, I mean, it's kind of a, a very common thing for codependents. Um, and it's not about changing that person. It's not about your relationship with that person getting better because they roll up their sleeves and do the work too. It's actually about you understanding and then restructuring how you interact and engage in that relationship. So then correct me if I'm wrong, but we should, we should never expect to see a narcissist rolling up their sleeves and doing the work. No, very, very, very rarely. I'm never going to say never because like I said, it okay. is a spectrum disorder. This is blowing my mind. very, very rarely. So, it's not possible. Okay, so, and it's not because they don't want to. It's literally not possible. Their sense of self would crumble. They would go into a complete psychotic hmm. break. Wow. Okay. So how many people on average around the world are narcissistic? Like oh, truly narcissistic? 
Yeah. I mean, I'm just curious because, because like, if this is like 20 percent of people that literally are walking around with this, you know, and they and they no one would know. Then I'm like, man, that's 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 kind of a abysmal hope for. So okay, so like I said, if you look at it because it's a spectrum disorder. First, let's let's also talk about. You know, I said earlier, the vast majority of people have codependent tendencies. We also all have, to a certain extent, some narcissistic tendencies too, right? It is just the way that our ego is structured. Um, But again, we're all fucked. Yeah, I mean, to a little, you know, <laughs> maybe to an extent, no. Um, but again, it is a spectrum disorder. So I, I don't know the the numbers. I do actually, and, and somebody's going to have to cite me on this or quote me on this, but um, uh, I do remember reading a an article once that talked about some research that was done that taught, that showed that um, the boomer generation had the highest percentage of narcissists of any other living or past dead uh generations. Now, if you look at narcissism, just like codependency as a a protection of self, a protection of ego that is developed in response to mostly upbringing, right? It can get kind of cemented or altered in romantic relationships and friend relationships too, but really cemented in upbringing. It is a response. It is a trauma-based response, just like codependency is. If you look at the fact that the boomer generation was raised by the generation that came out of the Great Depression, like we could pontificate on this and I'm sure there's research on it, but there's probably a lot of very specific parenting techniques or things, traumas that came from living through the Great Depression that then got passed on to the boomer generation, thus creating yeah, that, right? It, it reminds me of like that gen- the generational theory of like there's a hero generation, a crisis generation, a sort of like re- rebuilding generation, like those kind of things. And it almost yeah. kind of like almost like if narcissism were sort of ebb and flowing with depending on what the generation's sort of ultimate purpose was given the stresses of the times. Mm-hmm. Well, and look, now you've got a, a generation, I would say, of codependency within kind of the millennial generation, which would be the natural response to being raised by a narcissistic generation. So it's really interesting. I mean, I could like go off on this ship for hours because yeah. I find it fascinating, but I don't know the exact research to cite it. So I don't want to say that. I want to I want to keep talking about this because it's just so interesting because I've yeah. never heard sort of the narcissism be, be termed in the way where it's just like, well, you kind of just have it. Um, I, I'm just I'm curious on like, you know, so many people throw around the term when they go through a breakup like oh, I was the guy was so narcissistic. I was mm-hmm. dating. He was completely narcissist. Let me tell you, you don't know. but My therapist agrees. He's a narcissist or she's a narcissist. You know, they just all this shit. And um I find it very intriguing that we throw that word around now that you've given it so much weight because this this thing, what it sounds like, is clinically untreatable. I mean, uh, forget pharmaceuticals. You can't take a nice enough ice baths, meditate, you know, shave your head and go be a monk for 10 years. You will still be a narcissist is what you're saying, which, man, that's hard pill for me to even swallow because I really genuinely believe that humans have an incredible capacity to heal themselves. But it if if we're approaching this from the term of that they're broken to begin with based on societal norms you know I, i'm curious on like i guess as a society you said like probably the biggest sort of bene- beneficiary of the people that know that this person's narcissistic right and, and you said it's gradient but like who, who's to even say that if this person gets diagnosed in a clinical setting that they'll they'll tell somebody you know, because a lot of times it's like denial. Well, that's right? actually a really good point. And that's why I say I don't think that many people have certain numbers that they can like percentages or things that they, we can even kind of source because it's very uncommon for a narcissist to want to go to therapy, for example. 
They're going to get That's drug into therapy by their codependent <laughs> partner, most likely. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they're wow. going to okay. sit on the other couch and go, it's not my fault. It's their fault. They're the fucking crazy one. Right. But it, you're, it's very rare that a narcissist is just going to bring themselves to therapy again, unless they're on that yeah. very, very small side of the scale. You know, there is improvement to be made, but a lot of those improvements are actually superficial improvements. They're actually like if they're there and they're saying, okay, my let, let's say it has to do with work. My relationships at work are complete and total shit. I don't believe that it actually has anything to do with me. I think it's everybody else, but I'm here to maybe to try to figure out some skills. Maybe I can figure out some tools and tips to make everybody else around me work better and more efficiently because clearly something's not working, which I'm not going to take responsibility for. The therapist might be able to help them learn some communication skills and some tools to help them get along better at work. But the reality is if they're truly a narcissist, it's not going to become an internal, I'm the problem. They are going to be able to adopt some skills, but those skills might be more superficial. Does that make sense? Yes. So will a narcissist, a true one, ever be able to genuinely apologize from a place of feeling like they've done wrong and hurt someone else? I'm going to say no. And the reason for that is, is because if you're a true narcissist, you actually have a really hard time. And again, depending on where you're on the spectrum, potentially even almost an impossible time accessing empathy. Wow. Man, I'm sitting here just like, because I've heard the, I've heard, I know that narcissism lacks empathy, right? It's that clear cut definition that I've read, but I just, is it's inaccessible. So like, doesn't matter what they do, they can't change it. And so is this like, are we talking about a biochemical imbalance? Like where is the science, like is the science just merely social science and it's not just like, there's people have less dopamine or they've, you know, has nothing to do with that, but it's like completely. It's ego structure. I mean, look, I'm sure there's some studies out there. I'm sure people have yeah. studied the brain chemistry of, of narcissists versus people who are not, right? Um, I, I wouldn't pretend to know that research. I mean, look, my school, obviously being more of a Jungian school, we do talk yeah. more about like the egoic structure than we do about like the neuroscience behind it or, you know, because we don't even really back a lot of like medications and stuff unless absolutely necessary. So yeah. it would be hard for me to cite that. But I am sure if you were to do, if you were to pull research from a neuroscience perspective, that there would be a difference in the brain chemistry and the brain. So I would actually almost bet my life on it. Um, but what's coming up for me as a question is I wonder. Oof. I'm going to make a bold statement here and I actually want to like look into this further. I actually wonder if the brain patterning would be similar to a codependence. Yeah. And, and would it mirror like a clinical depressive disorder too? Because right. like if we're, we only have so many precursors we look at, right? There, right. There's, we know 1% of the brain, we're never going to understand probably more than 5%, honestly, in our in our sort of ability to understand stuff, at least biochemically, because it's like mm-hmm. the ocean. It's like infinite capacity right. for things going on. But I'm curious on like, what are some, you know, going back to the point where so many people, when they exit a relationship, they're like, my ex-partner is severely narcissistic. You know, they just start diagnosing people like they fucking know everything. And because usually they're avoiding taking any accountability. So it's almost like they're sort of like saying something narcissistically, interestingly enough. But I'm curious on what are some trends that you can give us that are legitimately indicative of someone that is on the higher end of the narcissistic spectrum so that people stop wrongly diagnosing Mm -hmm. others and themselves based on situations. Well, you're making me go back in time to like some DSM studying in college. Um, <clears throat> or just, you don't even have to, I know that's like the book of from the Holy Grail, but like in your, you treat people and you, you yeah. talk to people every day. Like what are some trends that you notice, you know, in right. humans? So, like, I mean, there's a couple of big ones. 
Uh, I would say an inability to access empathy would probably be the first and foremost biggest one. And I don't mean like somebody, you know, dismisses your feelings sometimes or gets defensive or honestly, even somebody that necessarily gets abusive um, because I don't think that they just naturally correlate into like an inability to feel empathy. Right. Um, but I mean, a true inability to access empathy. Um, so I would say that's one of the big ones. I would say another one is uh an absolute inability to take responsibility for their actions. So a lot of times what I hear, and again, it's like, it's like people who really do have narcissism, they live in, they live in this world. I mean, some of them are very successful and they're successful for a reason. It's because they're very skilled and smart at studying people and interacting with people in ways that are self-serving. Um, so whether that's again, like being very gregarious and very outgoing, right? Like they make people like them. So, this inability to really truly uh, accept responsibility, a lot of times you'll hear that that word, but. If somebody is apologizing or hearing you out and they in any way use the word, but, anything that they've said prior to the but is completely washed away. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot of us though until we learn, I had to learn how to apologize because I would make excuses. I'd be like, you know, I'm sorry right. I yelled, but you were making me feel really angry. But I need to defend and myself. But I need to defend myself and that's not really apologizing for you. It's just still a shield for me accepting accountability and responsibility for hurting your feelings. But if I was in the relationship with you and that was one of your kind of go-to things, right? Yeah. And I called you out on it and I said in a moment of like relational connection and I was crying and I said, you know, but Nico, like you always do this and I'm just, all I'm saying is like, I'm really hurting right now and I just need you to see me in my hurt bet your ass you would access empathy in that moment yeah that's a pretty good communicator too though you know because a lot of people like like the the unconscious mind would be like well fuck you i'm crying you know slam the door or shut down and hide or get on your phone like what you just said is very healthy and for sure i could see myself and i'm trying to put myself (laughs) in a situation of trauma right like like if i'm really angry and i've been triggered you know if someone communicate that way for sure but if, if they shut down and their avoidant or anxious tendencies come out like where is the narcissist, you know, like, like where would the narcissist really like peek their head in that? They would just be completely devoid of empathy. So they're looking at you with blank eyes and they're just like, I don't get it. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, that is- could definitely be one way. I, I think that we're also trying to like pinpoint a very nuanced conversation, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think again, because it's a spectrum disorder, I think it's going to show up differently again with different people, which is why it's so hard to pin down. And this is why it's so hard because again, most narcissists are not going to take themselves to therapy and then be diagnosed with narcissism. A lot of times narcissists, again, it's like either they've gotten drugged to therapy or they end up getting diagnosed, whether it's through um, the system. So like, let's say, you know, they're in trouble as a kid or let's say they're in trouble, you know, with the law, like they end up getting into the system somehow and getting forced counseling. That's where a lot of times these, you know, these diagnoses will happen. Um, but I, I don't know if there's any other way so, for us to really get a so, wrangle on it. So sort of the child you just described in my mind is like, you know, broken family, broken home, that kind of thing. But I feel like a lot of times when I, and I can't diagnose someone with narcissism, but I've noticed people that have higher degrees of narcissistic behavioral traits, mm-hmm. a lot of them come from what would look like is very structured families, like very mm-hmm. sort of idealistic or perfect childhoods. Although it's not, but from yeah. what you see on the outside, it's very much like white picket fence, family has a dog, mom and dad are there. Like, But that know, shit actually scares me even more. It does, because <laughs> I think that's where that's where the, the sort of shroud is. It seems you know? like it's a facade. Like, it, yeah, totally. And I'm... 
I'm just curious. I'm like, is there like one form of childhood trauma or another that leads more to narcissistic behavioral tendencies? Like, is the kid always told like, you're perfect, you're amazing, you can do no wrong? Does that lead to narcissism, or is it like you're you're shitty? You know. I think it's both. So I, I'm, okay. I do not claim to be uh, an expert on narcissism, but w- in the research that I'm, I'm kind of remembering that there tends to be two different camps of parenting that can lead to narcissism, the development of narcissism, which is you can essentially create a narcissist by like being so ridiculously over the top about how amazing and how perfect and how this and how that they are. Um, or it can be the opposite, right? Which is essentially you've instilled in this person that they have zero self-worth and that they are a giant piece of shit. And so nobody can really live from that place to, and thrive. So some people develop this kind of, like I was saying, if you could see me doing it, it's like the ego's in the center and then there's like this hard shell on the outside. They develop this hard shell on the outside of being amazing in order to protect from the deep-seated, true, true belief that they are actually complete garbage. Wow. Because that's really what if, narcissism is. It is that. It, yeah. it is. I have created this structure around myself that I'm amazing because deep down inside, I actually believe that I'm worthless. Right. It's a severe defense mechanism that sort of once you build it, you can't get out of in a sense. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if like, uh, you know, from a parenting perspective, it's really just not seeing your child at all. Yeah. That's you definitely know? one of the biggest ways. You're and, either and, dumping and, them. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, you're either dumping continuous praise, even when it's unwarranted, or you're shitting on them so much where their sense of self is gone because you've told them who they are, or who they are, or you've taken away who they are. Which either way, you is haven't not allowed them, them to discover their own sense of self, right? Exactly. You haven't allowed them to discover. Wow. I know. I'm, I'm sitting here just thinking so much about it because I, I also my heart goes out to so many kids in that in those situations and i know like you know a lot of parents don't realize they're doing this and they have their own form of trauma and it's usually generational passed on but like man to to be you know just like six nine ten twelve years old and to not really know what's going on but you're sort of being set up um for for essentially something that's that's sort of untreatable you know um man i i can't think of a i don't know in my mind it's it seems like it just seems like a, like a jail that, that someone's not it even is. signing up for and they're being put in. And you know, it actually, I, that's it? a beautiful way to put it. And, I, and I'll tell you, now that I understand narcissism in the way that I do, and I've experienced a, a pretty good handful of narcissistic relationships in my life um, in different kinds, different forms of relationship, I actually feel almost the most compassion and the most sadness for those that actually suffer with NPD. And that doesn't excuse or justify behavior by any means. It doesn't mean that I'm going to tolerate behavior just because I really truly feel the sense of compassion for them, but it truly breaks my heart. And I'll tell you in the certain relationships that the people with narcissistic tendencies kind of are still in my life and need to be in my life, again, it's become more about that like sadness that is triggered in me now when they when they act out of their narcissism. It's like a, God, I see this child in them. I see this hurt six-year-old. I see this hurt, you know, nine-year-old. And it truly breaks my heart. Again, it's not that I allow the behavior that I justify it, but it, it does give me this sense of, again, depersonalization. It's not really about me. Um, and it allows me to hold them and see them in a very different way, you know, um, which just enables me to respond differently. I really hope that at some point, 
you know, as science evolves and as treatment plans evolve and as, you know, like we bring in stuff like psilocybin, MDMA, LSD that we can hopefully treat and help people that are, that are with this. Yeah. You know, because I really think it's a, um, I'm having a friend of mine who's a, who's a pretty famous artist in town draw this, this portrait that I, that I thought in my mind in therapy. And it's like this huge steel door and this little boy or little girl sitting at the end of this corridor. It's a very dark corridor at the steel door. And there's light sort of on the other side of the door. And the, the, the child is like kicking screaming. It's crying. It's like laying in a pool of its own tears. It's like talking to the door. So it's trying to do anything it can to get this door to open, but it doesn't have a key. It just like it might be someone else's door. It might be like a relational door where like it's your partner's door and they, they're not even in the hallway or might be a parent that you can't reach. But it's some it's some sort of devoid space of I don't want to use the word light because I think darkness and shadow. It's it's like sort of you need both, but it's almost just like something that you completely need to survive, mm-hmm. just like you need water, shelter, you know, and connection. It's like it's like connection, really. It's what's yeah. on the other side of that door, you know, connection with yourself and then then you can truly connect with another because I see a lot of people having very superfluous relationships these days where, you know, taking photos on Instagram, doing all these things as a couple, looking very beautiful. But then, you know, behind the scenes, it's not like that, you know, and I I, I can almost like relate it in a way to like not wanting to admit that you have a problem. But then but then now I have even more empathy for, for certain people that can't even really see that something's going on because it's just sort of like, there's no way they're ever going to take themselves to therapy as you brought up. Like one of my main things now, if I'm going on a date and it's not, it's not like a, honestly a turnoff because some people just don't, they do other ways of therapy. You don't have to go to therapy. There's other ways, but I, I'm highly a believer of it because I've been in it since I was 23. But I, I'm like, have you ever been to therapy? It's like a question that I ask, oh, yeah. you know, checklist one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like it, it's funny because I have this long checklist and then uh, a couple episodes ago, I forgot who I was talking to, but they were saying, oh no, it was, um, it was uh, Stephen Jenkinson. He gave an elder wisdom presentation with Connor Beaton on the Man Talk show. And he was talking about how us millennials need to get rid of those checklists because no one's ever going to live up to them, you know? And and, and, and I think it's, I see you like nodding your head. I was like, it's a balance, right? It's like, because yeah, I like, I want to have these sort of cornerstones because this is what I offer, I think, because this is the work I've done. But I also don't want to be so stringent where I'm forcing my sort of things on another person because then I'm just trying to date myself, yeah, that's fair. I mean, look, I I actually, I, I don't agree that we need to throw away the checklist, right? Yeah. I'm actually a big proponent of creating um, what my partner likes to dub like your non-negotiables list um, and, and starting from there. But he does really say like, make your list and then let's get really clear about what's a non-negotiable and what's a preference. Yep. Because preferences are the things that should be thrown off the table. Like, yes, it's ideal, yeah. but like, it's not going to make or break it, right? A non-negotiable yes. is something that you should not throw away. Like, for example, somebody having emotional maturity and not getting defensive and being able to sit and have hard conversations, that's a non-negotiable. And or be able to take be. criticism on right. from the other side. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I don't think that we should not have any kind of list. I mean... Shit, I like to say that I manifested my partner because my my list kept getting longer and longer. And I remember my mom saying to me very clearly, you are making your dating pool smaller and smaller with every level of like self-work that you expect this person to have done. But guess what I did? I manifested my ass another therapist. And it's great. So I think it can work out sometimes. Man, um, I, in my mind, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I'm always thinking like, you know, for someone that, doesn't know if they have if they're narcissistic or not like did these do you think these people ever think about if their ex-partners 
might thought might have thought or think they're narcissistic because in my mind like when i go through a separation i'm always like man like how does my partner view me you know they're like, not thinking like about how- you <laughs> i promise you that they're not <laughs> fucking thinking about you <laughs> no, no, you mean narcissist not that your ex-partner yes. is thinking about but narcissist whoever's listening who's gotten out of a yeah. relationship with a narcissist like i hate to be the bearer of bad news but they're not thinking they're just, about you so they can cut you out and you're, yeah, and they, you not, could have been in love with them for 10 years, but you're cold. It's coldness. They're not pining. They're not, you know, I wonder if they're thinking about me this way or what could I have done differently? Like that is just not accessible for them. So I, I would say, let that go. Okay. Wonderful. So for someone that has, has been in a relationship, no matter how long with the narcissist, how do we still, or how do they still practice accountability and look at the things that they did wrong and unhealthy in a relationship without just saying, oh, it was a boundary thing. I just should have never got a relationship with a narcissist. Like, the, oh, the person like, who was in the relationship with a narcissist? Yeah, it's yes, a lot of yes. self, like looking inward, right? Because I always think, yes. well, especially when they come at me with this whole like, well, and then my partner was a narcissist and they did this and they gaslit me. Listen, and this is a very unpopular opinion, but I've actually had this exact same experience when somebody's come into therapy, especially couples, and said they cheated. My first thing is always... What was your part in this? Oh, yes. Thank you. And let me tell you, that is not a popular opinion and people do not like to hear that shit when they're on the other side of being quote unquote wronged. But the bottom line is your psyche was just as attracted to this person as theirs was to you. So I'm not saying that you did the cheating, but I'm saying there was a component. You were both playing the game together. There are two of you in this relationship. We got to stop being in this victimhood of like this person did all of this shit to me. You know, it reminds me of Esther Perel's work. And I appreciate you bring up infidelity because I've been on both ends of that spectrum. And it wasn't until I really realized like, because I, I, when I was younger, you know, raised in a very sort of modern Catholic family with these ideals, it was like, if you cheat or you're unfaithful, it's like the worst thing. And I, my whole adult life, I was like, I'll never do this. Right. And then when I did it, I, I like, was like, first of all, I took accountability for what I did like, like immediately because hurting someone I love deeply I don't think there, I don't think I've ever experienced a greater pain than that, honestly, besides losing someone I love like to death. Um, But I will say that like, it also made me try to understand like, why did I do this? Because it it happens for a myriad of different reasons. And that's why I really like how you bring up, like explore it. Don't just shut it off and say it's bad or good. Like, why did it happen? Like, what did you, what were you looking for? What were you not getting? And some people are just selfish and they just want to fuck everyone. Some people are lacking emotional connection with their partner and they're asking for it and nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. Maybe their partners want to go to therapy and they've been asking for tears and they do something else. Right. And how does the partner, like the other person, how, how did they play a role into it? You know, I think that's so healthy to ask for that. The, the problem that people run into is that they don't want to let go of victim mentality because then they have to be accountable and to be accountable means you got problems, boo. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you got problems, well then shit, it's really hard to point your finger at other people because you're like, well, fuck, I, I fucked up too, even though I didn't cheat, but like how, how all of a sudden I'm the, I'm the problem, you know? And it's, I think that like, that's the one thing that highly resonates with me with, with going to therapy and having a therapeutic practice in a setting with a therapist or a coach or someone, because they can sort of be like, wait a second. Just like you said, I hear what you're saying that you were cheated on, but what was your role in that cheating? And then usually doesn't people minimize are like, your pain. Doesn't right? minimize like, your pain. I hear you. I know yes. you're hurting. And, and yeah, hundred percent can be true. Most you don't definitely. get to be all victim. You're never usually all victim, right? Both can be true. And I mean, look, that's like the definition within the therapy world. That's essentially the definition of somebody with like a high emotional intelligence or like healthy emotional self is somebody who actually truly has the ability to hold tension of the opposites and to understand that conflicting truths can exist. You can be both the oppressor and the victim yes. at any point 
and yes. be alive. And uh, or at I the think, same time, <laughs> or at the exact same yep. time. Totally. I think uh, the second episode I had on the show was a friend of mine, Meredy Atwood, and she went through a divorce from an 18 year relationship where her husband was unfaithful. And I really, they're, they're co-parenting right now. And I, I feel like it's a, it's quite beautiful how she's grown into handling this. And I want to bring it up because when I first talked to her, her, her sort of opinion was a little different. And as she's gone to more therapy and, and, and really worked on herself through this loss and she made a ton of mistakes, she admits them, but she, she says like, she's like, you know, his infidelity wasn't just his doing. Like I can see the times when I pulled away, when I wasn't yeah. present, when I wasn't validating him, you know? And I really respect that, uh, her ability to sort of ride that nuance and yeah. Ooh, understand that hard. she's been hurt. It is really hard. It takes a lot of emotional capacity to do that because you're saying that even while being in pain, in deep pain, that you also caused pain. Mm-hmm. And that takes a fucking grown ass person emotionally, yes. you know, and not a lot of people are doing that shit. It's either one or the other. It's all, I'm a horrible person or that person's horrible. It's like we can be horrible and be really amazing at the same time. But the point is, if we're not aware of how we're being horrible or the shit that we're doing to others and ourselves, you can't do anything with it. Yeah. And, and that's partly I, what is so important in the therapy work, right? Is like I, I've actually had plenty of people who have come to me looking for therapy referrals. And one of the things that people struggle with, well, it's two. One is they get a therapist that just doesn't say anything. It just kind of nods and says, like, how do you feel about that? Um, which I believe is kind of like the old way, the like, you know, I'm faceless as a therapist. Um, or they essentially have somebody that it's almost like a cheerleader. It's almost like they're just constantly uh, affirming what they believe, what they're doing, you know, how they're showing up without challenging. And I have had, look, I have a very specific style of, of being a therapist. Like I've been told by many people, I'm the cold water in the face therapist and I'm okay with that. I like it, man. But I'm one of those people that like, if you come to me, I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going to say what I see, yeah. right? I'm not going to be right. mean. Clearly, again, I no. can hold the tension of your, your suffering and, but if I think you're ready to hear it, you're going to hear it because otherwise I'm not doing my job. I'm just holding your yeah. hand and that's it, right? Which is helpful. And I also need to be like, there's a light switch over there. Do you want to walk over and turn it on? You know, I have, I have so many questions. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours because it's so interesting, especially the polarity between you and Danae. Like, yeah, like, so different. Would you, I love her. Yeah. I mean, would you say you have like a high level of, and this has nothing to do with gender, but of masculine energy? Yes. 100%. 1000%. Okay. Cause that, I get, I get like the stern, like, but compassionate father, like voice where it's yeah. like, you know, in the masculine where it's just like, look, you might not want to hear this kid. But this is what's going on. This is life. You know? right? Yeah. As opposed to like the, the, the soft, crusty nurturing, although you have that. But I think like in, in a therapeutic sense session, when, when I hear sort of echo through your voice is that someone's probably not going to be able to run when they're sitting with you. And I think yeah. that one thing I, I've seen a lot of friends do, um, and, and I've really tried to not do this, is when we go into therapy we sell a narrative to the therapist. We're paying this person 100, 200, 300 bucks an hour. And they're like, what's going on, sweetheart? And you're just like, well, you know, I got cheated on. This person called me names. You know, they shook me once. Like, you know, they threw a, they threw a cup out the window. You know, they yelled at me. They said, I'm a, you know, I'm a shithead. And, and then the therapist is like, oh, that, how how does it make you feel? It's, it's, It's pretty bad, right? You shouldn't be treated that way, you know, and no doubt for sure. But a lot of times we're setting ourselves up 
to sort of be enabled to continue the same motor oper- modus operandi, you know, yeah. throughout our entire lives. And there's no growth there. And I hear when you talk, it's just like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Why do you think it happened? Yeah. 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 And I, and I, I think that's just the way that I operate. I think that is, um, for better or worse. I think it's my style of looking at things, you know, like I, and, and I, I'm also very, um, you know, it's, it's very obvious that there are some people who are not at that place yet on their journey. Right. So I, I do want to actually put words to the fact that sometimes depending on where you're at along this journey of healing of like kind of understanding the, the self, you actually are in a place where you need to just hear the compassionate holding uh, reflecting, empathetic, you know, that's what you need. That's what you need. That is the energy that you need, right? Let's say the feminine, more feminine energy. I know that my first therapy therapist was like that. And so as somebody who came in with a lot of masculine energy, what I actually needed was somebody who would just sit with me in the softness and hold my hand. Right. And then as I further progressed on my journey and I was ready to hear it, that was when I really craved and desired somebody that would come in and be like, all right, you want to get serious? Let's get serious, right? What's your part in this? Like, how do you own your shit? And sometimes one person can embody both. You know, I, I do like to believe I am able to kind of access that soft feminine energy when I need to. Yeah. And sometimes that's the point where you outgrow your therapist and that's totally normal and fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've graduated onto your next level and you need a different energy to, to meet you, you know? How does that dynamic play out in your guys' relationship? Because both of you having done a bunch of work, being therapists, doing this as your profession, being sort of influencers in the mental health space on social media, which is a way different thing now, right? Um, like, how does that how does that play into like the evolution of of your relationship? Because like, do you do you have to like both sort of transition roles where like someone has a higher level of masculine or feminine energy you know because it's it seems like both of you are, are, are so like type a personality go-getters like just absolutely crushing it and helping i've never other heard people. anybody considered an a type a but but i'll i'll take it <laughs> oh no, no no i'm talking about you and john oh okay i was like yes 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 yeah no also i don't no, think i would ever consider him type a well, so, I don't okay. know him personally, so I right. just I'm just basing off of what I've read in his writing and like. Well, here's what what's he, funny when you're <laughs> describing him. I'm thinking you're describing Danae, and the reason that why is, that's funny is because they're both very similar, <laughs> right? And we all oh, laugh man. about this. We laugh okay. about how similar him and her are. Um, what I will say is that I think when I was younger and I was less integrated. Uh, meaning it wasn't healthy masculine energy. I was in a lot of wounded masculine energy. And by the way, a lot of wounded feminine energy. Mm. Um, I think the people in my inner circle tended to be a lot more wounded masculine energy. I was kind of surrounded by people that were like me. I think that actually the more integrated I've gotten, the more I'm able to access that healthy feminine and that healthy masculine. I've brought people into my world that are able to access feminine energy in a different way. Um, and so both my partner and my best friend it's easier for them to live in the feminine than the masculine. I'm the opposite, which brings about a lot of struggle and also a lot of really beautiful challenge, right? Um, I think in a lot of ways, they actually allow me to access parts of myself that I wouldn't otherwise either be able to see or trust to soften into, um, or they challenge me to continue to try to soften into. Um, and I think that that's what's important about surrounding yourself with these people who do have these different qualities because um, while it can be annoying (laughs) some 
sometimes. <laughs> it's also a really beautiful yin yang situation. Yeah. And you have to, of course, be willing to listen too, right? Because you can surround yourself with people that are different. But then if you're just like, oh, they're always wrong and I'm which right. Which I didn't then. 10, 15 years ago, right? Like I wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't have that capacity, yeah. which is why I just unconsciously surrounded myself with a lot of people who had similar wounding. Well, Vanessa, it has been an absolute treat to talk to you. <laughs> we have to have you back on. I just have so many <laughs> we can questions just go for on you. And no, because I like how you're not shy of like, you know, just just really just getting into it, man. Yeah. You know, like you don't tiptoe around it. It's it's straight up. I and that. I really appreciate that. If you could leave someone, we got into a lot of like the deep and dark parts of sort of codependency and narcissism. But if you can leave people with some, like, you know, some light at the end, what would be like your one sort of like, I don't know, like gift if you were, if you're encouraging others to work on themselves or go to therapy or seek help or be a better parent, person, lover, whatever, like, you know, can you think of something you'd, you'd want to share with people? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, if you are just now kind of playing with the idea, then congratulations, you've, you've kind of moved into a level of readiness that many people never get to, um, or are too scared to get to, right? And I would say that we have to remember along this journey that it always comes back to us. It starts with us and it always comes back to us. So if you want your children to be healthier, you need to focus on you. If you want your relationships to be healthier, you need to focus on you. So it's not selfish. It's actually the best thing that you ever could do. And, you know, especially with children, it's like they learn by what they see, not by what they hear. So they're going to learn how to be compassionate with themselves if they watch you be compassionate with yourself, right? And that is a journey and that is a practice. And it's something that we develop over a lifetime. No one's doing it right. (laughs) We're all here bumbling around doing the best that we can. There's no right or wrong. There's no A plus passing. Uh, Welcome to being a human, right? In this like kind of beautiful, messy, screwed up (laughs) life that we live. We're all in this together. Wonderful. Well, Vanessa Bennett, where can people find you? How can they connect with you? Um, Throw a shout out to your podcast, which I think everyone should tune into because it's wonderful. So Danae and I, who we were talking about earlier, um, my, my, my bestie, we have a podcast called cheaper than therapy, which you can hear, you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Vanessa S Bennett. Uh, my last name used to be Smith, which is where that S comes from. Um, and then I actually just recently said, screw it. I'm going to be like the kids and join uh, TikTok as well. So I've been messing around on TikTok and I have dubbed myself the Coda Yoda on TikTok. <laughs> so I'm giving little snippets of advice on codependency on there. That is great branding. Guys, I'm going to throw uh, all the links to Vanessa's social profiles and her podcast with Danae Logan in the description below. So make sure you check them out, give them a follow, tune in and follow her for everything. It seems codependency, but also relationships and just your kind of tablespoon of of reality on the daily basis. Maybe the reality, but in a nice way. In a nice way. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks, Nico.